Hi, everyone, and welcome to our discussion of COVID-19 and public policy. This is the 10th briefing uh, for FYSM 1611E, um, and we are really getting to the tail end of the course. Only a few more weeks to go. Very, very exciting. Hopefully, uh, by now, everyone's hard at work on their papers. Um, hopefully, you got some uh, good feedback from your proposal. Uh, and you're working to include that feedback and, and work towards that feedback and you're implementing that feedback for your final product. So just, uh, you know, a key reminder, um, don't wait to start your final paper. I know it can be very, very tempting for students to try to approach coursework um, in sort of a one at a time incremental model. So you know you have a project coming up next week, so you devote all of your energy to that project. And then when that's done, you devote all of your energy to the next project. But studies have shown that the most successful students uh, try to work on multiple projects um, at the same time. So maybe you divide your time, you know you've got three hours to work uh, this afternoon. You spend uh, an hour on one project and an hour on another and then an hour on another project and do it a little bit at a time. Uh, this is really important because it gives you time to think things over, to mull them in your head, um, and to you know make changes as you go along. If you're just sort of you know crunching out papers in 24 hours, you don't have a lot of time to reflect, to reread, or to think about your argument. Oftentimes, um, I've had projects that you know I've started, let them sit for a couple of days, and then in the middle of the night, I'll just have a, an amazing idea. Um, and I'll, I'll, that'll change the way that my project goes. So please give yourself time to think and percolate on this and, and please don't leave uh, working on your paper to the last minute. All right, without further ado, let's continue on to our topic of the day, COVID-19 and public policy. Every generation faces its own big public policy challenges. From adapting Canada to the realities of war in the 1940s to building the welfare state, from combating the economic stagnation of rising crime rates in, 19, in the 1970s to adapting Canada to the new digital world. These are all challenges that we faced. I think that COVID-19 is the policy challenge of our generation. Few events in our time have so profoundly changed the policy environment that decision makers face or disrupted the lives of ordinary people so greatly. While the media focuses on picking apart pieces of the government strategy and berating them for their copious failures, which don't get me wrong, they totally deserve, academics look at things from a different perspective. We're privileged to be able to look at things over the long durée and to ask deeper questions about the COVID-19 crisis and what it means for public policy. This week, we're going to focus on applying the lessons that we've learned this term to the COVID-19 crisis. We'll explore how the theories of the policy process can inform our understanding of how governments have tackled this, uh, this pandemic. We will look at the roles of key concepts that we've learned throughout the semester, evidence-based policymaking, values, human rights, and emotions, uh, and how we can use these to understand COVID-19 policy. So what are our learning outcomes for today? By the end of this week, you should be able to better understand the concepts we've looked at this year, define, explain, and provide an example for new concepts like policy networks, policy learning, emotions in politics, and the ACORN test. These are all things we're going to learn today. And apply these concepts and theories to better understand the COVID-19 policy crisis. 
So in the first half, uh, we're going to really focus in on some of the concepts we learned from the policy process theories. Um, and think about how theory can help us to better understand how the governments responded to this crisis. Before we do that, let's look at a key term. One of the key terms we're going to be talking about is public health. So public health initiatives are a really important part of healthcare policy. Um, but it's only really since the Second World War that governments have taken a large role in the promotion of public health. The impetus uh, for this came from various epidemics uh, that people have experienced across time. Perhaps the most famous of these was the Black Plague, which wiped out between 75 and 200 million people across Eurasia. Diseases spread by European peoples resulted in the destruction of 90 to 95% of indigenous people living in the Americas after contact. More recently, in 1918, the epidemic of Spanish influenza resulted in about 500 million people dying worldwide. Uh, oh, sorry, infected 500 million people worldwide and killed 50 million, um, which is the equivalent of all of Canada being killed twice. Since then, governments have intervened more and more in public health. In Canada and the United States, multiple levels of government work on public health issues, and a lot of issues get brought into the public health umbrella. So, for example, in Canada, we know um, that we've got the Canadian uh, Public Health Agency, PHAC, or FAC, if you want to be, uh, if you want to make people who work there mad, you can call them FACers. Um, there's Public Health Ontario uh, and Ottawa Public Health. All of these different agencies work at different levels of government to promote public health. They do things like information campaigns on healthy eating, sexual health, drugs and health, uh, the vaccination programs, sexual health testing and epidemiology. And as we've seen, uh, these agencies went from sort of relatively obscure government departments and agencies uh, to uh, really the front of our focus during the COVID-19 crisis. All right, so the first topic uh, we're gonna look at today in, in a better understanding the COVID-19 crisis is the concept of policy networks. Uh, so policy networks are a topic that we've not touched on too much uh, so far in the course, um, but they're really, really important. And they're probably a term that you're gonna hear um, a lot sort of as you move on from this course and maybe take other public policy courses or other political science courses. Policy networks refers to groups of entities that want to influence public policy on a given issue. These entities can be things like think tanks, um, policymakers, public agency, political parties, interest groups, NGOs, and academics. They generally tend to have relationships with one another. No, not romantic relationships, but usually professional relationships. For example, uh, the policy network surrounding firearms policy, which I study in Canada, um, involves political parties like the Liberals and Conservatives, um, activists and interest groups like the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights that we learned about a couple of weeks ago, and Police Souvien, who are a pro-control group. Um, the network involves academics like myself, who write about these issues uh, and try to influence how policymakers act, um, as well as think tanks like the Fraser Institute or others. All of these groups have a relationship, different relationships with one another. So for example, the Liberal Party has a lot of connections with pro-control groups like Police Souvien, while the Conservative Party tends to have uh, more connections with pro-gun groups like the CCFR. Moving back to COVID-19, which is our topic for today. Sorry, I'll try to keep the, the gun control tangents to a minimum today, <laughs> but it's my area of study, so I end up talking about it a lot. But policy uh, networks surrounding healthcare have been very important in promoting policy responses to COVID-19. 
This network includes important international organizations like the World Health Organization. And this is uh, Tedros Adhanom from Ethiopia, who's the current director general of the World Health Organization. He's had probably the hardest job of any director general in the history of the World Health Organization right now. Uh, um, since you know the, the WHO has been the center of a lot of a lot of scandals and a public war with Donald Trump and all these uh, myriad of, of international issues on top of you know dealing with a pandemic. Uh, other people in the policy network that are involved in dealing with COVID-19 uh, include government departments like the Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, scientists and experts uh, like Dr. Tam, um, Dr. Uh, Aruda in Quebec, um, as well as uh, advocates, right? There's advocates on both sides that have tried to push certain policy responses to COVID-19 and delegitimize others. You have, you know, everywhere, everyone from anti-masking advocates uh, to advocates for the elderly who are fighting to make sure that the pandemic doesn't uh, result in, you know, bad outcomes for elderly people. And any more than it is. All right, uh, another important concept for understanding the policy response to the COVID-19 crisis is policy pathways. So yes, uh, we have a lot of networks that try to influence how governments respond to certain issues, um, but policy pathways are different ways of, of looking at how that actually happens. So governments adopt policies through different pathways. Um, and this is illustrated very clearly with COVID-19 measures where policymakers were forced to react very quickly to a rapidly evolving policy crisis, one on which um, they had very little information at the beginning uh, and the information that they did have was sort of changing constantly. Generally, governments have adopted policies responding to COVID-19 by following these different policy pathways. And looking at policy pathways like this is interesting because it helps us understand how policy ideas travel around the world in the same way that a virus travels around the world. So one uh, policy pathway is called policy learning. Theories of policy learning try to explain how policymakers acquire new policy relevant uh, knowledge and skills. As we can see, policymakers have been engaged in processes of learning throughout the pandemic, especially learning from experts um, and have tried to incorporate these lessons into their policies. That being said, we must remain aware that science is not the only factor influencing uh, policy learning for governments. For example, um, uh, you know, policymakers are often uh, influenced by their own ideologies, by their own interests, and by their own values. For example, if we look at COVID responses in the UK, we can see that while Boris Johnson's government um, was originally implement implemented very lax restrictions, right? Uh, it was a conservative government. They were keen on uh, trying to minimize the amount of government interference in the economy and people's lives. So they originally implemented lax restrictions. Um, but as the crisis evolved and worsened, they learned from their experience and, and implemented stricter lockdowns. This learning was not necessarily just them, you know, adapting to trial and error, but was the result of a lot of public pressure campaigns uh, from public health experts and from the general public and the medical community. Another way that policy uh, policies travel from place to place uh, or, or, you know, policies change uh, is through policy transfer or diffusion. It's another policy pathway. Policy uh, diffusion or policy transfer refers to the processes of policy learning that contribute to the sharing of policy from one government to another, as well as the products of that process, such as the import or export of certain policies. 
So we know that policymakers often look abroad or to other uh, levels of government um, for policies and then try to adapt those to their local context. Sometimes leaders in one country emulate leaders in another country. Other times countries will exchange policy ideas through international policy networks or international organizations. Sometimes the actions of a few countries pressure the government to change their own policies. We can look at policy transfer during the pandemic from a few sources. First and foremost, uh, we can look at uh, policy networks among health professionals and international organizations like the WHO and how these entities have worked to promote and spread certain responses to the pandemic, uh, like mask wearing laws. Right? Originally, the Canadian government was quite skeptical about the value of wearing masks, um, and they were trying to sort of preserve uh, PPE stockpiles for healthcare professionals. Um, but uh, eventually, uh, they sort of adopted to new guidelines from the World Health Organization and other public health experts that said that masking was probably a good thing. There's also been a lot of uh, policy learning going on from countries that have more experience, uh, extensive experience with pandemics. So I don't know if you remember, if you're too young to remember this, uh, but in the early 2000s, there was uh, another uh, coronavirus, SARS, um, that, uh, which stands for Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, um, which was, you know, the biggest global pandemic in years, I mean, up until the current one. Um, it never really made it to a great extent to Canada. Um, it was uh, sort of too effective of a disease and, and killed too many people. Um, but uh, it was is very, very widespread in Asia. Um, and so a lot of uh, East Asian countries had more experience dealing with pandemics because of this SARS crisis. Um, and these countries became global leaders in terms of policies at dealing with them. So for example, a lot of policies that we have adopted now came from South Korea. Um, and their quarantine model, which has been copied by many other countries, or the practice of uh, the policy of having drive-through testing centers, which was first pioneered in Korea. Look at all these Kia cars. Kia is a Korean car manufacturer. Um, even within Canada, we can see policy diffusion happening, you know, even with within uh, actors within Canada. Premiers in provinces like Alberta and Ontario who have at times tried to resist strict lockdown measures have been pressured by healthcare professionals and public opinion to adopt stricter lockdowns. So we can see this policy diffusion happening both internationally and within Canada. Pretty cool stuff. Another important lesson from the COVID-19 uh, crisis uh, for policy um, is sort of a validation of the idea that public policy is not just what governments do, but it's what governments don't do. Remember, we talked about that when we talked about our definition of public policy. Uh, Non-decision making, right? So the uh, ability of, of political actors to ignore issues that they don't want to deal with was thus hugely important in COVID-19 policy, as we saw with leaders who were initially more laissez-faire with lockdown models. These decisions uh, can not only be costly in terms of lives or economic impact, but they've had a profound impact on the careers of politicians. For example, Trump's perceived inaction uh, in response to COVID-19 was a major factor in his failure to win a re-election. Unless, of course, you're on internet message boards, in which case it was ancient aliens. Uh, but no, but more realistically, um, it was likely uh, Trump's uh, sort of 
inaction and refusal to really deal with or accept the, the nature of the crisis that probably led to his downfall. So uh, another uh, way that we can use the theories of the policy process to better understand what's happening during this crisis is by looking at the concept of agenda setting. So remember we talked about uh, non-decision making uh, is a way that governments can try to uh, keep things off of the agenda. Um, but as we know, policymakers don't always have perfect control of which issues end up on the policy agenda. Um, the agenda uh, can be predetermined by powerful mm -hmm. actors uh, like the prime minister and cabinet who sometimes get to choose the issues that they want to deal with and avoid uh, issues that they don't want to deal with. However, sometimes powerful focusing events force certain issues onto the policy agenda, no matter uh, how much certain actors try to change the channel. So Trump wanted to resist dealing with the pandemic issue as long as possible. Um, but uh, in the end, he couldn't keep it off of the policy agenda. It was too big of a focusing event. Uh, COVID-19 has been really one of the biggest focusing events of our generation. It's dominated the policy agenda, um, completely pushing off uh, certain important issues like climate change or indigenous rights. I mean, remember uh, what was going on before COVID? We had the Wet'suwet'en protests. Nobody's talking about those now. Doesn't mean that uh, other issues haven't been dealt with, right? Like there has been some uh, policies passed to try to deal with climate change and other issues, uh, but COVID-19 has been really effective at pushing a lot of those issues to the background of, uh, of our way of thinking and, and of what policymakers have tried to deal with. So for example, uh, when COVID-19 came along, um, myself and a lot of other uh, experts who deal in this issue thought that Trudeau's gun control agenda was dead in the water. Um, we thought that, you know, he'd made a lot of uh, big promises in the election on gun control, and we thought that these weren't going to happen. Um, then came the mass killing in Nova Scotia, which, like a focusing event within a focusing event, put gun control back on the agenda. Policy entrepreneurs like Bill Blair and Justin Trudeau, um, as well as gun control advocates, were able to take advantage of this policy window to pass unprecedented gun control legislation not through debate or deliberation in the House of Commons, but through an order in council. Uh, order in councils are a, a parliamentary device um, that's usually used by governments to make minor changes to policies during their implementation. So, you know, a policy gets passed, it's being implemented, so it's being put into practice, um, and they notice that there's, you know, a small thing that's wrong with it. They'll use an order in council to sort of fix that. Uh, the way that the government used the order, ordering council to enact such significant gun control is fairly unprecedented. Uh, and another a good example of the power of focusing events and the ability of actors to use obscure, obscure rules and regulations that are built into institutions to get what they want, right? Things like proroguing or orders in council can be powerful political tools. All right, another important concept that we've probably talked to death this semester is the idea of evidence-based policymaking. When you came into this class, you probably thought that evidence-based policymaking was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And since talking about it a lot, you maybe uh, think a little bit differently about it now and how it works in practice. Scientific expertise has become central to policymaking in the era of COVID-19. Once obscure civil servants and scientists, public health doctors and epidemiologists are literally the new rock stars. Names like Horatio, Horatio Arruda, Teresa Tam, Vera Etches, and Anthony Fauci have become household names, depending on where you live. 
That being said, though expertise has been an important for informing public policy, the ultimate decision of which experts the government listens to and which policies they enacts always rests with politicians. As we have seen, policymakers have simultaneously listened to public health experts and ignored them, depending on when it suited their interests. This is not a surprise, as policymakers are motivated by a number of interests and values. Regardless of the extent to which they've listened to healthcare experts, policymakers have leaned very heavily on them to legitimate the policies that they've put into place. This leads to really important questions uh, like accountability, um, that are, are, are discussions that kind of sit in the background of discussions about evidence-based policymaking. If a policymaker is relying on the guidance of experts to make a policy, who's responsible if that policy goes wrong? Is it the policymaker? Is it the expert? How can evidence be used as a shield by policymakers to escape accountability for their own decision making? These are really important questions that I think we're going to be grappling with a lot in policy over the next few years. Finally, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the term about framing theory. Uh, if you remember, frames, uh, it's a uh, sort of a rhetorical tool um, or ideational tool that policymakers and others use to try to change people's minds on things. And frames work by bracketing off certain elements of reality um, and concentrating people's attention on other ones, right? So we already talked about different frames like pro-life or pro-choice and how, you know, the pro-choice frame tries to focus people's attention to uh, women's autonomy um, and sort of bracket off the issue of uh, whether, you know, fetuses are people, different stuff like that. Whereas at the same time, the pro-life uh, issue tries to focus attention on um, fetal, uh, the life of the fetus or the rights of fetuses um, and bracket off the issue of women's autonomy or even the issue of the effectiveness of bans on abortion. So frames are really powerful tools for trying to con convince people to support or do something. As governments have struggled to secure the buy-in of their citizens for COVID-19 policy, we've seen them use a lot of frames during the pandemic to try to convince people. So there's the uh, the frame, you know, we, we've seen people talk about how, uh, you know, if you're if you go outside, if you're not following public health advice, you're killing grandma, right? So it really trying to focus people's attention on uh, the impact that their behaviors have beyond uh, simply the impact to themselves, right? A lot of people see the risk as individual, like, oh, you know, I don't care if I get COVID, I'm young, it's probably not gonna hurt me. And they don't think about the six or seven or eight or other or nine other people who may get COVID as a result of that decision. Um, related to this is the, the idea of the public health paradigm and the way that public health can be used as a frame. So the public health approach has been applied to a number of issues. Um, and it's interesting to think about how labeling an issue as a public health issue changes the way that we might think of that issue or act on it, um, as well as alternate frames that have been applied to these issues. So let's look at some examples here, uh, sort of beyond the pandemic, because I think it's fairly obvious that the pandemic is a public health issue, um, but there's other issues that, that you know, we've worked hard to sort of label as public health issues. So here are a bunch of different frames. Uh, the public health frame, uh, which tries to focus on the public health elements of an issue. There's the morality and personal responsibility frame. Uh, this is a frame that we, we see trotted out a lot sort of um, with regards to uh, issues of, oh, sorry, issues of public morality. 
There's the individual liberty frame, which tries to frame an issue as uh, the result of an individual choice. Um, and there's also the criminal justice frame, which tries to criminalize a certain issue and say, you know, it's the responsibility of the courts to deal with it. So if you look at something like sex work, right, we can see how it's been framed in different ways throughout time and how these different frames have kind of fought for control of the issue. Um, so there's the morality or personal responsibility frame, right? Like for a long time, sex work was seen and, and to a large extent today by a lot of people, it still is, you know, sex work or purchasing sex work is seen as immoral. Um, and so uh, the issue is framed in terms of morality. And obviously, if we're framing it in terms of morality, you know, the law should reflect our morality and therefore we should ban sex work. We can also look at it through the individual liberty frame, which would say that, you know, people should be free to uh, exchange services like, like sex work uh, as long as, you know, it's not hurting anybody and everybody is consenting. We can look at it through the criminal justice frame, which has tried to criminalize sex work. Um, or we can look at it through the public health frame uh, where, you know, in countries like uh, Australia, brothels are legal um, and people can purchase sex um, and uh, legislation around this and regulation of how brothels are operated have helped reduce the public health implications that come from sex work, such as the spread of, of STIs and, and, you know, substance abuse issues. Uh, all of these issues we can look at through these different frames. Drug addiction as well, right? Drug addiction is sometimes framed as a morality or personal responsibility issue, right? Drug addicts are to blame for their own addiction, um, and therefore, you know, we don't have to worry about helping them. There's also the individual liberty frame. People should be free to smoke marijuana if they want to, um, as long as, you know, they're of age and, and it's properly regulated. There's the criminal justice frame, which was sort of the dominant frame during the period of the war on drugs. It's how people thought of, you know, they thought of, of drug use as a criminal issue. This frame is still exists for, for a lot of harder drugs, although it's shifting in some countries. And then, of course, a public health frame, which would promote things uh, like um, safe injection sites, uh, different stuff like that, to try to once again reduce the public health outcome, negative public health outcomes that come from drug addiction without necessarily stigmatizing drug addicts using one of these two frames. So we can see uh, if we look at different issues uh, we can frame them in different ways, uh, it can have different outcomes for how people understand the issue. And a lot of times the debates on these issues are debates between competing frames, uh, trying to vie for dominance. Um, at the same time, you know, I think we're generally primed, uh, or many of us here will probably be, be generally primed to see uh, frames like the public health frame as kind of neutral and scientific. We have to be really careful about labeling something as a public health issue. And we have to think about the way this can be used to depoliticize issues. Um, now, you know, we usually think about depoliticizing issues as a good thing, but it can also, uh, depoliticizing an issue and trying to make it seem like it's, you know, just logical and scientific can also write out of the story the experiences of key stakeholders or people that are involved in this issue. And scientific discourse, so scientific language, can be used to silence opposing views. Right, evidence-based policy uh, involves choosing which evidence you listen to, um, and uh, oftentimes it can sideline things like emotion or experience, which are important considerations for public policy. So during the COVID-19 crisis, we've seen different frames fight for dominance over the public's understanding of the issue. Right, I would say the dominant frame, the most popular frame, is probably the public health frame. Right, that's how most people are sort of interpreting the issue. Um, but we've also seen the individual liberty frame. 
try to sort of uh, pop up, right? The, with the anti-maskers or people, even beyond the anti-maskers, civil liberty organizations that have tried to sort of push back against some of the really, really harsh lockdown measures that have taken place in some countries and sort of asked, you know, uh, how long can we justify impositions on our individual liberties in the interest of public health? We've also seen another frame that I didn't mention here, which is the economic frame, right? Um, the debate over COVID-19 policies is often seen as this debate over between the economic frame and the public health frame. Um, so yeah, framing is a really, really interesting way to look at the issue of public health and to look at how different frames have fought in the public, uh, in the public eye to try to compete uh, to control policy outcomes. All right, that's enough for the first half. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about emotions, values, and rights, other key considerations uh, that public policy can tell us about the COVID-19 crisis. Stay tuned. Welcome back for part two of our discussion of COVID-19 and public policy. Today, we're going to be talking about how emotions, or sorry, in the second half, we're going to be talking about how emotions, values, and human rights relate to COVID-19. I'm really excited because uh, I also teach human rights classes. And as much as I love talking about public policy, I also love talking about human rights. Uh, so it's kind of a win-win for me today. So let's get started. So an important part of this course has been to illustrate that evidence-based policy, while a nice idea, can never fully resolve complex policy issues. That's because policy involves not just rational decisions about objective facts, but also questions of interests, questions of ideas and ideals, and questions of values. Even seemingly scientific issues like pandemic response involve the negotiation of competing interests and values. Value decisions involved in the COVID-19 policy include questions such as what or who is essential. And we've seen policymakers sort of try to wrangle with this uh, for a little while. As Doug Ford famously said this January, what constitutes essential will be different depending on different people's needs. But policymakers are being asked to make these difficult decisions about, you know, which employees are essential. Uh, is it essential that we have um, meat going to people for meat packing plants? Is it essential that uh, people be able to get their hair cut? These are all questions that policymakers are dealing with. It also includes deeper value debates uh, on things like, you know, the economy versus human life. We talked about that in the first half uh, in relation to frames, right? The public policy frame versus the economic frame. But we can think of it sort of beyond the realm of political strategy. We can think of it in terms of like the value of our, the values of our society. It's uh, this forces us to deal with complex questions. Like, is it better to preserve the, the nation's economic well-being while sacrificing the vulnerable? 
Proponents of the economy side have been framed as uncaring and cold, but economic disasters um, are happening alongside these uh, negative health outcomes. What happens to social programs when we have to cut them to rebalance Canada's budget and stop Canada from experiencing bankruptcy and a debt crisis? What happens to the nation's health if the economy collapses? How have lockdowns served to enrich big businesses while destroying the hopes, dreams, and financial futures of many small business owners? The decisions that policymakers are making during this pandemic must take uh, must we must think like take into consideration the impact not just of what's happening now but for generations to come and especially for your generation. So while we can try to present these things as you know easy trade-offs, right? Obviously, if you talk about human life versus the economy, human life should be prioritized. Um, but these decisions aren't as easy as we might try to frame them as. Discussions of values during COVID-19 also include things like COVID-19 travel rules, right? Throughout the pandemic, we've seen a variety of different travel restrictions, not just the recent restrictions that the federal government put in on international travel. During the first wave of the pandemic, uh, interprovincial travel was heavily regulated, right? We saw Quebec close itself off to Ontario, um, which, you know, considering Ottawa is really um, a shared entity between Ontario and Quebec, it literally divided some people's lives, right? Um, I know at that time, my girlfriend lived in Quebec. So we were literally, she could come and see me, but I couldn't go see her. We were divided by these restrictions. Um, but beyond those sort of everyday inconveniences, uh, those restrictions resulted in real life tragedies, right? While, uh, uh, you know, truckers and, and business people were able to travel interprovincially to provide essential economic services, um, some people were barred from attending the funerals of their loved ones. Um, they were barred from traveling interprovincially to support a sick family member. Um, these are really, really serious things, and they call into question the values of our society, where we'll allow a businessman to travel to strike a deal, but stop an elderly grandmother from being able to see her daughter one last time. These things really demonstrate that, you know, our response to the pandemic is cannot ever solely be evidence-based. Uh, we have to take into account values as well. And I think that the pandemic has really illustrated that. This is my mug. You can actually buy these. I haven't gotten one yet, but I think it would be really funny to have on my desk, non-essential employee of the month. My, my uh, partner is an essential worker, so we often joke about how she's essential and I'm not. All right, we often think of emotions and public policy as two separate things. In fact, uh, sometimes uh, when we talk about um, policymaking or policymakers as emotional, it's used as a way in, as a way to present them as not rational and to delegitimize their policies. Right? We generally think that policy should be rational and fact-based, um, whereas you know emotions are seen as spontaneous and irrational. That being said, the pandemic has forced politicians to deal with emotions be it the public's emotional response to COVID-19 measures, the emotional implications of the mental health challenges that so many people are facing during this pandemic, or even the instrumental use of emotion to sell policies. <clears throat> this is probably the part that politicians are best at because they're very good at manipulating people's emotions, right? It's one thing to be able to sell a policy rationally, but it's a lot easier to sell a policy if you can appeal to people's emotions. 
Um, and we've seen uh, emotions used in a number of ways to sell policies during this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, one emotion we can look to is fear, and this has been a big one, right? And to some extent, this makes sense. The virus is scary. What it's doing is scary, and the implications are scary. Um, and politicians realize that sometimes to sell these policies, you do have to use fear uh, to be able to convince people to do the right thing. In January, Doug Ford told Ontarians that they would fall off their chair if they saw Ontario's modeling numbers. Uh, this was, you know, part of his kind of folksy witticisms that he uses that I find very amusing. Um, and he used this, uh, this sort of uh, fear-based approach as part of the justification for imposing new lockdowns. Uh, politicians have used uh, shame as well. Another one of, of my favorite Doug Ford sayings uh, is when he was talking about this summer, people having uh, large gatherings and parties during the crisis. And he said, these people must be a few French fries short of a happy meal. And I think I was listening to, to the radio in the car and I just burst out laughing when I heard that because it was such a funny way of wording that. Um, but yeah, that's an example of shame being used. Uh, and we see politicians sort of naming and shaming people who, who break the COVID rules, even though we know politicians break the COVID rules too all the time. Uh, policymakers have used inspiration or patriotism uh, as an emotion to try to uh, motivate people to do the right thing, right? Uh, they've tried using inspirational messages. Um, if you're in Quebec, I'm sure you've seen uh, the rainbow with the ça va bien aller uh, all over the place. Um, other politicians have appealed to patriotism to encourage people to do the right thing and flatten the curve. Excuse me. Uh, one of the, you know, less good emotions that people have used, um, especially uh, policymakers who are less adept at handling the crisis, um, has been uh, to try to promote fear of the other. So rather than, you know, fear of the virus, um, they've tried to uh, play the blame game and, and shift the fear to uh, innocent groups. Um, or, you know, uh, blaming other countries, stuff like that. So, for example, Iran, if you remember, at the beginning of the crisis was one of the, the hardest hit countries. The government was widely criticized for not doing enough to prevent the virus. Uh, the healthcare system all but collapsed. And uh, at that time, Iran, uh, the government of Iran, in order to shift the blame, tried to suggest that COVID was an American invention. Um, other uh, policy leaders have peddled baseless anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the source of the virus. Um, and Trump, uh, you know, even a Western leader like Trump tried to shift the blame uh, to China to cover up for his own uh, poor handling of the crisis using racist terms like the Kung flu and stuff like that. All of that being said, and recognizing the importance of uh, public health measures in you know, preserving Canadian lives and, and helping people, there's also been a discussion going on about COVID-19 and civil liberties. Uh, COVID-19 has probably involved the greatest sa sacrifice of civil liberties on the behalf of the pop population since World War II, or at least the FLQ crisis. This is something that policymakers must navigate when designing policies that deal with COVID-19, because as much as they sometimes like to ignore it, we do have a constitution in Canada. In Canada, our civil and political rights are codified in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which we looked at briefly when we talked about institutions, uh, as well as in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, right? These are two documents that outline your human rights, um, if you haven't read them yet, I suggest you take a look. It's really important to be aware of those things, uh, not just because they're interesting to study, but because they are your human rights. 
um, and you have them, and that's important because a lot of people don't. Uh, or they do have them, but they're not recognized. It's a whole debate. But yes, uh, it's important to be aware of them. When thinking about COVID-19 and human rights, uh, it's important to uh, think about the fact that human rights are divided into two categories, right? I'm sure we've, our, we've all heard, um, or a lot of people are skeptical of the human rights discourse uh, when we're talking about COVID-19 because of the way that discourse is used by somewhat irrational uh, actors. So for example, we hear uh, anti-masker people who are you know, ticked off about having to wear masks in public. Uh, they will often uh, cite violations of their human rights in order to try to avoid uh, doing the right thing and wearing a mask. Um, but that does not mean that all invocations of human rights when talking about uh, the COVID-19 crisis are illegitimate. And it's especially important in a time of crisis to be aware of our human rights and to be advocating loudly for our human rights because it is in times of crisis that our human rights are the most in danger. So one way that human rights scholars think about, about uh, civil and political rights um, are by dividing them into two categories. So the first categories, as we see right here on the screen, is protections. These are limits to what the government can do to us. This is things like your right to a fair trial, the presumption of innocence at your trial. Um, all of these are important things that protect you from being unfairly treated by the legal system or the government. Um, you know, your right to uh, know the crime you're being charged of, your right to avoid unfair detention or arrest. All of these things are really important protections that limit the government's power. Powers is the second type of, uh, of civil and political rights, and these are our right to do something. So powers are things like uh, our right to freedom of expression, our right to freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, things like the, that. Um, and in general, Human rights theorists who recognize the fact that sometimes as a result of an emergency, we do have to limit certain human rights, generally say that uh, it's better to restrict our powers than our protections, right? Um, this is because restricting powers, while harmful, uh, are not, is not as dangerous as restricting protections in a democratic society at least. And since restri uh, restricting powers usually impacts everyone, the backlash serves as a countermeasure to, co to government abuse. So what this means is uh, protections generally protect small minority groups while powers protect everybody, right? Everybody in Canada has the right to freedom of expression regardless of who you are. Not everyone in Canada is regularly subject to uh, unreasonable detention or arrest, right? That's usually minority groups that are the target of that, right? We can think about Muslim Canadians after 9-11 uh, and the amount of uh, Muslim Canadian men that were arrested on vague suspicions of terrorism uh, with no charges brought and no real uh, justification, right? This was an example of their protections being taken away. Um, and that did real harm to a lot of people. Um, we can think about, you know, the case of Meher Arar uh, as a, a really good example of that, a Canadian citizen who was sent abroad to be tortured. Uh, and it turned out he was completely innocent. Um, powers, on the other hand, uh, because they're shared by everyone, um, generally governments have a lot more incentive to be limited uh, in their use of limiting powers, right? So for example, when you take away people's freedom of assembly, because it affects everyone, uh, people are more likely to rise up and sort of push back against the government for doing this. Whereas oftentimes when the government limits people's protections, um, people have that attitude of, well, you know, 
it doesn't affect me and I'm kind of scared of terrorism. So who cares if they arrest a few uh, innocent men if it protects us, right? Um, which is not a very good attitude to have, but it's the way people tend to think. Um, so uh, this distinction is really, really important um, for thinking about uh, the restrictions on, on COVID-19. And we'll go over that in a second. Um, oh, sorry, another example that I have in my notes that I want to make sure to mention because it's it's very uh, relevant to Carlton um, on the dangers of getting rid of protections uh, is that um, and, and is a particular example of a Carlton professor. So uh, Professor Hassan Diab, who teaches at Carlton, was wrongfully arrested on terrorism charges by the RCMP and spent nine years in prison before he could clear his name. His basic human rights were denied to him because anti-terror legislation took away his legal protections. So taking away legal protections like the presumption of innocence is really dangerous. It's something that we should never do. Um, whereas taking away powers, um, while also dangerous and uh, obviously not ideal, um, is something that you know we can be a little bit more comfortable with in times of crises. Uh, which largely, um, during the COVID-19 crisis, most of the human, uh, civil and political liberties that we've seen sort of temporarily taken away have been powers, like our right to freedom of assembly. Um, so there is some, the good news about COVID-19 and human rights in Canada is that the majority of infringements have been on these civil and political rights rather than cutbacks on powers. Um, confinement laws uh, might limit our, our power to assemble freely and mandatory mask laws challenge our freedom of expression and quarantines infringe on our right to travel. But because these are universal cutbacks, their negative impacts are felt by everyone instead of just specific communities. Um, and this has created a powerful check on government power. And uh, we've seen governments be very, very careful uh, generally with how they, they put these laws in place and also how they enforce these laws. Another way that we can think about the legitimacy of infringements on our civil liberties is through what's called the ACORN test. So this is a legal test uh, that judges use to decide whether a certain policy or law violates the Canadian Charter. Legal tasks are, are logical constructs that are made up um, and in order to measure specific laws against. They help to determine the scope of our rights. That's because uh, our human rights in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Universal De Declaration of Human Rights um, are written in very broad language. Uh, and judges need to interpret things like this, right? They need to interpret things like what the right to life and liberty mean, um, different things like that, uh, especially in the context of complex health debates like assisted dying. So the ACORN test, uh, also called the Oaks test, uh, consists of asking whether a law or policy meets four criteria. The first uh, criteria is the objective of the law. So is the objective of the law legitimate? Does it serve a real purpose? Um, this seems common sense, but oftentimes, uh, as we know, policies are not necessarily rationally based. So the second, is there a rational connection between the law and the objective that it seeks to achieve? Very important. Once again, this should be common sense, but often is not. Number three, uh, does the law or policy attempt to limit freedoms to the smallest extent possible while achieving a policy goal? So for example, uh, for a COVID-19 policy, um, if the government decided to uh, imprison everyone who tested positive with COVID in a facility in Nunavut to stop the spread of the virus, 
um, that would probably be seen as a disproportionate infringement on people's rights and freedoms. Um, however, you know, asking people to stay home for two weeks if they test positive uh, is not necessarily a disproportionate infringement because of the danger of the virus. So there's also the, uh, the fourth test is the proportionality. So are the benefits gained greater than the harms caused by limiting the right? So uh, this is how the Supreme Court uh, evaluates uh, laws and policies when they might violate civil liberties. And it's important when we think about COVID-19 policy. It's also the reason why, you know, a lot of people who may choose to make uh, complaints to the Supreme Court about, you know, mask wearing laws uh, or limits on gatherings and stuff like that, they're going to run into a lot of trouble um, because uh, the acorn test or the oaks test is essentially kind of it's a giant asterisk next to our rights um so yes you know you have the right to freedom of expression in canada you have the right to freedom of speech but this is in america that right isn't unlimited right there are reasonable limits um, and those limits are determined using the the acorn test or the oaks test so really good this is a good one to have in your back pocket uh, if you're having, you know, family Zoom dinners and you've got that relative that likes to talk about how, uh, you know, we are being forced to wear masks so that we can be dehumanized and sent off to slaughter or something like that, you can you can counter with this one. So the COVID-19 crisis has necessitated one of the largest mass behavioral transformations in recent history. What was once innocent, shaking a hand, giving your mom a hug, hanging out with friends at a coffee shop or a pub, is now taboo, a danger to society. Creating this behavioral transportation has necessitated the creation of new laws. For the most part, these laws are understandable given the situation, but the challenge comes often with enforcement. There have been issues across the world with the draconian enforcement of social distancing rules. This is not to say that these rules aren't important and should not be respected, but it simply means that governments really have to be careful with how they enforce them to ensure that the enforcements are proportional and they don't end up disproportionately impacting those least able to deal with them. That was a major crisis, uh, major complaint about the curfew in Quebec was its impact on homeless people uh, who were forced to choose between um, uh, going into a shelter where they could be exposed to COVID-19 because shelters are quite crowded uh, or being fined for breaking Quebec's curfew. So to look at an example of this, um, and, and we can think about uh, these enforcement and these infringements, and we can try to apply uh, the, the ACORN test to them. Let's look at the example of the stay-at-home order that took effect in Ontario in early January. Uh, as I record this, uh, the stay-at-home order is still in effect, um, and uh, it mandates that people avoid all indoor gatherings, limit outdoor gatherings to five people, uh, it closes all non-essential businesses, and it asks people to avoid leaving the house except for essential reasons. So let's say we want to determine whether this policy represents an infringement on our human rights. Well, the first thing we can think about is, is it a limit on our, our protections or our powers? So this infringement of, uh, of rights limits our powers, right? Our power to go out and do things, um, not our protections. We still have the right to fight these charges in court, for example. So this is a good start, right? Because as, as we've discussed before, um, policies that limit our powers are, are better than policies that limit our protections. But if we still really want to be careful in, in evaluating this, as we should with, with all policies, we can then evaluate it using the ACORN test to see if, if it is going to be constitutional or not. 
So first, uh, the objective of the law, uh, is it legitimate? Well, I would say yes, the objective of the law is legitimate. Um, it's clearly specified. They're trying to reduce the case numbers, avoid the healthcare system being overwhelmed, uh, and reduce the number of people in ICU with COVID, therefore saving lives. So I would say, I think it would be really hard for a judge to disagree with the fact that that's a legitimate objective. So is there a rational connection between what the policy is doing and the objective? I would say yes, it's probably much more rational than Quebec's um, curfew laws uh, in that uh, it, you know, lockdowns have been proven effective, even if they are economically harmful. Um, they are, you know, effective at reducing the spread of COVID-19. Um, and we've seen that elsewhere. Uh, three, uh, if we think about the scope of the law, um, the law is very, very limited in scope. Uh, this is the most tenuous part, but I think a judge would argue that the government has shown restraint given the unprecedented nature of the crisis, right? They're not, you know, shipping people off to Nunavut. They're not locking us in our homes. Poor Nunavut. I don't know why I always use it as an example of like the Siberia of Canada. Um, I apologize to any, any Nunavumium? Nunavumiet? There's like a special word for people from Nunavut. Anyway, if anyone here is from Nunavut, I apologize. Um, I just think it's sort of funny because it's so cold there. Uh, for uh, is the law proportional? That's the last part of the acorn test, proportionality. Um, and I think that it would likely be judged to be proportional um, as saving human lives is a big deal. So this example highlights uh, how policymakers and the courts must navigate human rights concerns while making policy. And it also gives us as citizens a way to evaluate, um, you know, whether certain policies are kosher or not when it comes to our human rights. So to sum up, um, today, in today's briefing, we discussed how we can use the theories of the policy process to study the COVID-19 pandemic. More specifically, the policies that have been put into place since uh, the pandemic started and, and how we can use these theories to explain sort of the why and the how of uh, public policies related to stemming the tide of COVID-19. We've looked at how policy networks work. We've looked at learning and policy diffusion, right? How policies move across borders. We've looked at uh, agenda setting and how the COVID-19 pandemic has served as a major focusing event. We've talked about framing and how competing frames have fought for dominance of the public's understanding of the crisis. We've talked about evidence-based policymaking and whether or what COVID-19 can tell us about the viability of evidence-based policy. We've talked about the roles that things like values and emotions have played uh, in shaping the pandemic response. We've talked about the impact of COVID-19 policies on civil liberties and human rights. And most of all, we've highlighted the fact that in public policy, uh, it's not just what policymakers do that makes a difference. It's what policymakers choose not to do. So hopefully this was interesting and helpful. And hopefully it really helped you to think about how in your own papers, you can go about applying the concepts and the theories that we've talked about to a policy issue of your choice. Um, you know, there's no saying that you can't take uh, a slide from this paper and say like, hey, I'm actually really interested in talking about how policy networks work uh, in regards to public health policy and write your paper on that. There's no shame in doing something like that. Before we close off, let's talk about our logical fallacy of the week. And this week we're talking about the politician's fallacy. This is a really interesting one. 
So the politician's fallacy goes something like this. We must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. We must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. So we can see sort of the error in the logic, right? It happens up between, between these two. We must do something, right? There's a crisis. We have to respond. This, what I'm proposing is something. Therefore, we must do this. Right. This is kind of used as a way to justify bad policies um, or to uh, close off the discussion on certain policies that some people might have very legitimate objections to. Also, uh, I, I don't know why I chose a picture of Justin Trudeau for this, but if you've ever seen uh, the show Community, um, which if you haven't, it's a fantastic show, highly recommended. Um, but uh, they talk about the darkest timeline and this is this is Trudeau from the darkest timeline. Those who are familiar with the show will chortle, I assure you. All right, so why do politicians use the politician's fallacy? Well, this is one that we can apply the things we've learned this year to, to think about, right? Politicians face immense pressure when responding to, to crises. They have to respond quickly and decisively. Um, and oftentimes the crises that we face in society are caused by much larger economic uh, or social structures uh, or institutions, Right, um, and that these social structures and economic structures and institutions are really, really hard to change. Maybe policymakers might not have, you know, be able to change it. Right? Uh, if you are old enough to remember the tragic mass shooting at Sandy Hook in the United States, um, afterwards Obama, the president of the United States, got up and uh, essentially gave a speech about how there's nothing he can do. Right, and he was visibly frustrated, very emotional. Um, but, you know, even he didn't have the power to shift that institution and to bring about certain gun control policies in the U.S. Um, so, right, there's larger structures, larger uh, reasons behind our problems. Policymakers can't always solve them, but they have to be seen as solving them, right? A policymaker can't just kind of, you know, wash their hands of a policy and say, well, you know, there's nothing I can really do about that. Um, so oftentimes they'll propose kind of Band-Aid policies to try to deal with this stuff. Um, and and uh, or you know wantonly copy other jurisdictions um, like Doug Ford has done with a lot of COVID policies. Uh, you know usually Quebec will do something and then we'll do it two weeks later. But uh, yeah, so policymakers are boundedly rational. They rely on heuristics like ideology um, or policy learning, things like that, to make decisions. And this causes the politician's fallacy. Let's look at some examples. Um, let's think about fighting crime right? Uh, criminal justice policy is a huge area of policy um, and a very expensive one. Uh, as criminologists and, and uh, public policy scholars have told us, we know that violent crime in Canada uh, is not just about, you know, individuals choosing to be bad. Um, it stems from several large systemic issues, right? So uh, issues of race and class, uh, racialized minority and indigenous people uh, in Canada are more likely to both be the victims of and the perpetrators of a lot of violent crimes, including homicide in Canada. This indicates that a major cause of criminality, and especially homicide in Canada, is systemic, systemic uh, discrimination against these people. Um, a lot of this has to do with gang activity. So the majority of homicides in Canada are related to gangs and the drug trade. These stem from systemic inequalities that force young people, usually young men, to pursue status and money in gangs since they are systemically denied opportunities to win these things legitimately, right? If you are being forced to meet ends meet 
And uh, because of, you know, your, your parents didn't have enough money to send you to a good school, maybe you didn't have enough money to pay for college or university, or you had to drop out of high school to help support your family. Um, and then, you know, you live in a community where the drug trade is, is quite present and you have an opportunity to, to gain money and status through engaging in the drug trade. A lot of people are going to make that choice because they see it as a uh, more, you know, they, they see it as, as a way forward and an option when they don't have very many options ahead of them. Um, and this is something that we have to tackle if we're going to deal with crime. Another huge factor that drives violent crime in Canada is alcohol and drugs. Um, so the drug trade is a major cause of violent crime in Canada, as we talked about, as it allows these street gangs to make money, right? Uh, a lot of gangs wouldn't have money to buy guns and other uh, tools of the trade if they didn't make so much money selling drugs. Further, alcohol use and drug use are heavily associated with criminal behavior. A study of federal inmates in Canada found that 30% of murderers were under the influence of alcohol uh, when they committed their crime, and a further 21% were using both drugs and alcohol when they committed their murder. Um, so we see that uh, alcohol plays a big role uh, in, in violent crime in Canada. Um, another issue, a big systemic issue, is cross-border traffic, right? Um, we talk about uh, gun control in Canada, and, and we're, you know, Canada has a very, very strict gun control system in place. Uh, but even despite this, 85% uh, of gang murders in Canada involve handguns. Where do these guns come from? It's difficult to say, but the best estimates continue to show that the overwhelming majority come from the United States. This usually hovers somewhere around 80% of, of crime guns coming from the U.S., uh, and especially handguns, depending on which city is releasing those stats. Um, so, you know, we share the world's largest uh, unprotected border, with, unmilitarized border with the country with the largest civilian stock of firearms. It's fairly naive for us to think that we can completely remove firearms from the hands of criminals, especially gangs that already have networks uh, for, for moving drugs across borders. It's just as easy to smuggle a Glock as it is to smuggle you know, a kilo of cocaine or whatever, whatever you're smuggling. So that being said, uh, you know, these large um, issue, complex issues are really hard to tackle, right? It's often something that, you know, one government isn't going to be able to, to achieve. Uh, as much as Trudeau likes to talk about Indigenous issues, his government isn't going to solve Indigenous issues in one term. It's, it's, even if he was sincere in everything he said, uh, it's a really, really tall order. Um, but politicians need to be seen as doing something and doing something now. Thus, generally, um, politicians will sort of fall back on pre-programmed responses to certain issues. Um, and it's interesting to look at the different responses, right? So if you're a conservative like Stephen Harper, uh, conservatives tend to fall back on uh, tough on crime policies. Um, so they use tough on crime policies like mandatory minimum sentences, uh, which are proven to not only be ineffective, but to disproportionately impact marginalized people, especially racialized minorities. Uh, liberals are only slightly better. They, they uh, respond uh, in different ways to crime. Uh, one way has been uh, marijuana legalization. Um, so uh, legalization is probably a good thing, but with number of other drugs still on the black market, the drug gangs are unlikely to lose out on a lot of profits as a result of this. They'll probably make up the market selling other drugs that the, the government isn't, you know, uh, they're not willing to go as far as the Portuguese and decriminalize all drugs, um, even though that might be uh, what they would need to do to really take the wind out of the sails of these crime gangs. Uh, it's just not, you know, politically palatable. 
Um, also, uh, they'll do things like banning assault weapons, which is, uh, as I, I've said very publicly in some of my op-eds, is nothing but useless pandering. Uh, as we've seen, Canada has robust gun control system in place. Um, for example, you know what they call assault weapons aren't the same thing as in the States, where you can have a magazine that holds you know, 30, 40, 50 rounds. Uh, in Canada, we have strict magazine limits already in place. There's a, a lot of hoops that people have to jump through to become law-abiding gun owners in Canada. Um, and the, this assault weapons ban that doesn't even ban all semi-automatic firearms, they just picked a list of specifically, of particularly spooky ones, um, is not going to make any serious dent in crime, especially since, uh, as the Nova Scotia shooter showed, um, it's quite easy for people to bring these these tools in from the United States and, and cause as much mischief as they want, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, really interesting to think about the politician's fallacy and this idea that, you know, there's a problem, here's my solution to the problem, we have to do my solution to the problem or else we're not solving it, right? All right, that's our logical fallacy of the week. I know I went a, a little bit off on that one uh, more than usual. I apologize for that, uh, but hopefully you found it interesting. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about pipeline politics and indigenous and environmental issues in public policy. Uh, the reading is the Janswood reading, explaining variation in oil sands pipeline projects. Excuse me. Um, and I'm really, really excited uh, to be talking about that with you next week. Uh, until then, have a great day, um, and I look forward to talking to you later.